I'm Michael, and welcome to Beyond the Screenplay, the podcast where each week we do a conversational deep dive analysis into a film. Today, we're looking at the 2003 film Lost in Translation, written and directed by Sofia Coppola. I'm joined by the Beyond the Screenplay team, Trisha Oran. Hello, everybody. Brian Bittner. Moshi Moshi. And Alex Cayetos. Hi. So before we dive in, quick business at the top, we have a new perk on the Beyond the Screenplay Patreon, which is that if you are a $5 patron or more, you get access to the video versions of the podcast. We record all of these over Zoom. As I'm speaking, I'm looking at everybody's lovely face, and you could be too. If you <laughs> join the Patreon, uh, $5 or more, we have lots of other perks, which I'll tell you about later, but just wanted to announce that. And for our Spotify listeners, our Spotify Q&A question is, which is your favorite Bill Murray movie? It's a tough one. I want to know your guys' answers, but we'll, I don't want to get off track too too quickly. But So <laughs> let us know in the Spotify app. Your favorite Bill Murray movie? What about Bob? I'm just really quick. It's what about Bob? <laughs> like <laughs> Between that and Groundhog Day. Yeah. Which is probably a deep cut for a lot of people. A lot mm. of people don't even know about what about Bob. What? How could you? Okay. Just look up what about Bob. You're welcome, audience. <laughs> <That's okay. laughs> what about Bob Harris? Oh, uh, there it is. Okay, Brian. segue. <laughs> um, okay. So Lost in Translation came out in 2003. I remember seeing it, not in theaters, but shortly after it came out on DVD and being really into it. How old was I? 2003, so I was 19, I think. Your last year of high school, probably. So yeah. Yeah. going right. out into the world, mm-hmm. try to figure out who you are. Mm-hmm. Right. The Garden State era. Phenomenon. Uh, yeah. Where there was also all these kind of indie films about like, what does it like mean? Who am I? And what are these feelings? <laughs> and I want a movie that isn't really about anything that's about something. And I feel like this was, <laughs> you know, was a really great movie to fit in that role. And, and I really connected with it, which I was surprised by and haven't really seen it since. So it was really interesting revisiting it, seeing it as an adult where, you know, at the time, I'm watching ScarJo and I'm like, yeah, she's an adult. Like, it must be so weird to be an adult yeah. traveling the world. <laughs> and I'm like, she's a child. What yeah. is this child doing? She's already married and all this. So, well, she was 17. I, I just want to get that out of the way where she's playing right. in her young 20s, but she was actually 17 years old. Wow. I didn't realize that because she seems so young. And I was wondering, I was like, is she just playing young really well or is she actually this young? <laughs> Yeah, no, she was younger than her character. Wow. So that's, yeah. Pretty crazy. And you can definitely see it. Yep. 35-year-old Michael can see it in a way that, you know, I'm <laughs> yeah. 16, 17-year-old couldn't. So yeah, I'm curious to hear from you guys uh, what your thoughts are, how they've transformed with this movie. Trisha, it was on your top 10 of the aughts decade. So why don't you start us off? Yeah, so I probably saw this movie not in theaters, but in college. I just responded to it right away. It's such a mood. You know, mm-hmm. part of that's the soundtrack, part of that's the cinematography, and we can talk about all of that. Part of that's the complete lack of script and the way that the <laughs> audio is mixed, which is just like, they're saying words here, but you don't need to hear them. Just look at the feelings and <laughs> mm-hmm. and the neon and like all of that stuff. And it's amazing to me, though, that as a screenwriter, of all of the movies kind of that in this era were exploring you know, sort of these more like mood pieces uh, or music video type of things. Yeah. This one actually does have a plot and does have a structure. 
and which we could talk about, but it, it isn't boring. It feels like it's moving, moving slowly, but moving very deliberately toward its like crisis and its climax and its conclusion. It's so lovely. Like all those things that I'm talking about, the mood and the just sort of emotions. I want to say this movie like is structured around the emotionality of this relationship and the way that the relationship builds is the structure of the movie. It's really fascinating and it's just really lovely and has such a strong feeling to it, strong melancholy to it, I guess. And, you know, and as someone who loves to travel it like, it's like, it's about travel and finding yourself and all the things you're talking about. So it like checks a lot of my personal boxes, but also is really well written. I'm going to say put together. It's really well put together because <laughs> it's not really written, but it's an impressive feat of a movie that doesn't feel like a feat. It just feels like this flowing experience. Yeah, that's something that struck me again this time is is watching it. In any given moment, I was kind of like, what's happening or what's really going on? It felt a little meandery, but also the whole time I was engaged and, and I, I watched a review that said it sneaks up on you. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And I feel like that summarized it very well for me. Or by, by the time I was like, I feel like I've kind of been angry at these people the whole time. So why <laughs> do I care so much about what's happening right now? Right. And the film definitely snuck up on me both times when I saw it way back then and especially now. Mm-hmm. Alex, what about you? What's your experience with this movie? It's interesting because I did connect with movies like Garden State and you know the before movies when I saw mm-hmm. them back in high school, but I didn't connect with this one. And there was something about it, maybe just these particular characters at that moment in my life, I wasn't really feeling it. Like the, their relationship didn't really draw me in. I wasn't putting together that they were both having you know, there's like a quarter life crisis and a midlife crisis mm-hmm. happening simultaneously. That's kind of like bringing them together. So the ending kind of got to me and it did have that sneak up feeling. But I think the journey to get to the ending, I wasn't with it the whole time. I think there was some there were some parts in the middle where, you know, there's the night out with the kind of the long night out where there's mm-hmm. you know, they're doing karaoke for a long time. And it went into that zone of like, I don't like these people enough yet, or I don't care about them enough yet to just want to watch them like do mm. things this much. Like, I don't really care about them enough to want to just watch them do stuff. And I think the movie thought I did by that point, and I, and I didn't. <laughs> uh, and, and so, yeah, I walked away from the movie just feeling like it, it kind of, it, it was meandering in a way that didn't get me. And watching it again now, I definitely liked it a lot more. And I found it a lot funnier mm-hmm. than I found it back then. And there's definitely just more nuance and more life experience reflection that I can bring to it. I still don't love it personally, but it definitely has an undeniable power that sneaks up on you. And some of the final moments of the film and kind of as you get towards that climax at the ending, you start to feel like the weight of this experience. And and so I, I I was impressed by that, how the movie, yeah, the movie was a lot more entertaining than I remembered as an adult. And the power of it, even though I wasn't enraptured by it, is undeniable and does sneak up on you and does get you by the end. So yeah, it's, it's an, I have an interesting relationship with this film. And it's, I still don't totally get like why it's amazing, <laughs> personally. <laughs> <laughs> All right. Cool. All right. Well, we'll get into that a little bit. We'll convince you, but okay. <laughs> okay. Yeah. Brian, what about you? Yeah, kind of, kind of a mix of everything you guys were saying. Um, I put. I also didn't see it in theaters, but watched it like the year afterwards when it came out on video. Weirdly, this movie and The Born Legacy 
I connected my brain for a very specific reason, which is that when I sat down to watch both of those movies, I was like, I'm enjoying this. This is fun. I'm having a good time. Uh, You know, that was good. I like that. And then a really surprising thing happened about two thirds of the way through, which is that the credits rolled and (laughs) (laughs) the movie was over. And I was like, oh, oh, okay. That was that was the whole thing. Uh huh. And I did not feel that way this time. I think that, you know, it, it's sort of one of those movies where people are like nothing happens or whatever. And I think it is one of those movies where you really have to be ready to pay attention to the nuance and the character stuff that's happening that isn't that's internal and not external, you know, plot stuff. So I definitely didn't feel that way this time watching it, partially because I knew what the end of the movie was, but also because I was like, no, I understand like what has transpired, how these characters have changed and sort of, you know, that kind of thing. But uh, yeah, and I do feel kind of like you were saying, Alex somewhere around the middle where they are in the night out. There's so many moments in this movie where I'm like, oh, so much was just said about these two characters and that little thing or like that character kind of this thing is worse than it was last time. And that night out is just like we are having fun for a good 10 to 15 minutes. And like there's not a lot of sort of character development and stuff happening during this time. It's just these characters like each other, like being with each other. And we're going to watch that for a while, which is also entertaining, though. So it's like I don't mind it. But yeah, other than that, um, I think it's a I just think it's a really well-made movie. I love the sort of music video-ness of it and the moodiness of it and all that kind of stuff. And yeah, I'm excited to talk about it. But I also, I'm not like surprised that I didn't watch it for the past 15 years since the first time I saw it. I'm like, no, I still think it's a good movie and I enjoy it. But it's not like, oh my God, how have I been like not rewatching this movie once a year for the past, you know, so long. Uh, So yeah, like it. The end. Can I chime in with a rebuttal really quick? Absolutely. Yeah. No, I'm, I'm very I'm very interested to like hear especially <laughs> yeah, your thoughts me too. because me too. yeah. Well, I, I get the feeling just based on maybe what Michael's face was doing when you were talking about the night out in the middle. I think Michael might be on the same page as me, which is it's the midpoint. <laughs> oh, sure. And it it does do the things that midpoints do. Like it's a long sequence, but I think it needs to be long. So, you know, you have the first half of the movie. This movie has a structure. Anyway, I like- <laughs> nobody was saying it doesn't. All right, no, definitely. <laughs> you kind of are. I know. I'm. I'm definitely not. <laughs> so I was. I was doing the time test when I was watching it this time, where mm-hmm. I was like, yeah. "Oh, there's the inciting incident. They just met each other for the yep. first time. You, you know, and here it is. They here they are in the bar, and then here they are where they like are speaking for the first time, and then here's the night out, and then here's you know all of this stuff." They line up. The, those things are on right on the money in terms mm-hmm. of where you expect those plot points to fall. To me, the first half of this movie dwells so much in the sense of like isolation, alienation, disconnection, crisis, right? We have two characters that are, are filmed mostly separately. Yeah. Um, and we see that they feel like they're drowning slowly and there's no one around that sees that or understands that about what's going on with them. Mm-hmm. And so I think that in order to get the weight of why this relationship becomes so crucial to their lives, you have to have a decent amount of this relationship becomes a lifeline to both of these people who are, you know, in crisis, essentially. And so you have to have one moment of they're enjoying each other's company is not enough. It has to be like, they found something really important that they have not found anywhere else. And it needs to feel authentic and really meaningful. And so, you know, the moment which you see in like still photographs that you pull from this movie all the time, which is the moment where Charlotte puts her head on his shoulder and they're on the zebra wall and she's got mm-hmm. the pink wig on, which is awesome. <laughs> That's like exactly at the midpoint. Stop your 
you know, DVD or your right. streaming. Why are you watching it on DVD? Don't do that. Stop your, <laughs> stop your streaming service right there. And it's basically right smack in the middle. So I disagree, Brian, uh, about the length that is needed for that metal sequence. I think you need all 10 minutes of it. And I think it's, yeah, that's yeah. all. And I also like, look, my, my argument always is if there's a part of your movie that's maybe not necessary for, for plot or character, but I'm entertained by it. That's fine. You know, there are action sequences that go on for five plus minutes where it's like, well, all we need to know is this guy got that guy. But like, it's a movie. I'm entertained. I'm having a good time. So like the night out is also just like part of the most one of the most fun parts of the movie. So it's like, even if yeah, even if you could argue that if you took this, you know, three minutes out and you still got all the character beats you needed, whatever. I'm having a good time. I'm having a good time watching Bill Murray improvise talking to like the old man <laughs> in a hospital or whatever, you know, that kind of thing. So like I, I forgive a movie even if I think like, oh, maybe we've got to a point where we are a little long on this beat before getting to the next beat. If I am having a good time and just watching like characters enjoy each other or something, then then I give that a lot of leniency. Mm. For me, like the the lead up to the midpoint is actually not a problem for me. I really enjoy the first half of this movie. Mm. Mm -hmm. Probably the only disconnect here for me is I don't naturally feel like the shift like it doesn't feel organic to me of like mm. ah this is the moment where like they realize they have this deep connection there's a reason why she puts her head on their shoulder now and not earlier like i think that's why the going out sequence it feels long to me is because like the cumulative effect of what that length is doing like i wasn't carried with it like to a point where like i i was like oh yeah i get it these two need each other right now these two are meant to be together right now this is a little tangent there's a new york times article recently that said there's a word for that blah feeling you're having it's called languishing mm -hmm. and i thought about that word when i was watching this movie it's like this is like languishing the movie which is a real <laughs> feeling of just like i don't know what i'm doing with my life i don't know where i'm going or what it's all about and it is two people who are both languishing to mm. find another person who is languishing and so that's i get that that, that that that's their connection right there i don't get why like the karaoke bar seals the deal so that's maybe the, what what the, where the disconnect is here mm. ah michael yeah. what do you think i feel like i there are just so many pathways that have been opened up in the last <laughs> discussions and i like i don't know which one i want to go down and i'm trying to decide if i want to start a fight or not right <laughs> We all like this movie, by the way. I know. Yeah. I'm like, I don't have strong enough feelings. I did really, I did really like it this time when I watched it. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. It's a unique movie. And so I think it does have these kind of unique side effects that are fun to like poke at and, and pull apart and, and look at from all these different directions. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. What I will agree with you, Alex, about is that I don't, especially on this watch through, I didn't understand or buy into the appeal for Charlotte 
like mm -hmm. why she was drawn to him. Mm -hmm. And part of that then transfers over to the other problem I have, which is buying Bill Murray as an action star. Past action star. Yeah, it, I think there's this meta thing happening with sure. Bill Murray that works both for and for me in this case against what's trying to be created in this film where because Bill Murray has been around and is this famous star and is, you know, aging and all this stuff, you buy that he's a star because we know Bill Murray as this larger than life star. But because I know him so well as very much not an action star, it was hard for me to switch the lens through which I was seeing him. But it's such a minor plot. Yeah, is, is that like, important to it's not the character? The, the kind of star he was? I mean, I, I guess I was trying to, like, if he had the presence of a, you know, a Daniel Craig or like someone that like was at one point, like a big, handsome action star, like I could get the gravitas. But I feel like Bill Murray's gravitas is his humor and his his wit. And like, I feel like you have to get to know him and spend time with him to be drawn to him. That's how I feel anyway. And so when Charlotte was so immediately drawn to him, I don't know, I that was a disconnect I, I have always had with this movie. Is I mean, she was drawn to him for the reasons you just mentioned. The, the wit. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Because because she's around people who are more like the action star. Mm -hmm. Right. Once she starts talking to him, and I think this is also then getting to that, that evening out, which I think is really fun, but is also kind of, it's like a testing ground for their relationship. Of course. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Where it's, you know, she invites him out, which is kind of a, a bold thing. But I also love the way this movie plays against a lot of your expectations like if this was a rom-com where they were invited out and now they're going to be doing everything together and it's going to be cute and they're going to be flirting the whole time a lot of that night out they're off doing their own thing mm -hmm, mm -hmm. and this was kind of maybe the, the third thought that i was having during all of this is that it this feels kind of like an introvert's movie mm -hmm. where totally <laughs> and this is where we can spar about her if we want but <laughs> That like I was able to see the the value that it would have for those characters to be somewhere where there's someone you can go out with, but not have to like babysit or be clung to mm -hmm. by like we can go out and have separate experiences, but we're having them together. And I feel like that's what that arc of that night out does for me is like this is a person who I can be around that isn't going to smother me. Like mm. the people that we they are, are they are in a relationship with, right? Mm. They both have these relationships with people that are big personalities and intense and all this stuff. So I think that juxtaposition that that's what a night out looks like between the two of them is kind of where I see the the appeal and the gravity happening. Mm -hmm. I very much agree, and you're reminding me of one of the points that I like was thinking about a lot when I was watching it this time around, which is this movie is incredibly well grounded and feels really sharply observed. Like I love scenes in movies that feel like I've never seen a scene in a movie like this before, mm -hmm. but I've lived an experience like this. Mm -hmm. And this movie is full of scenes like that, where it's like, I've been in that restaurant, I've been at that party, but I've never seen it portrayed with the texture and the emotionality that I had when I lived it. Mm -hmm. But here it is. And I adore that about this movie. And so The Night Out is a really great example of that, where the most magical nights out that I've ever experienced are ones exactly the way that you're describing, Michael, where it's like, there's a large group of people 
there's a sense of like freedom and chaos. And, you know, this movie is also dealing with travel and new experiences. And, you know, we're sort of going with the flow of the night and there's adventure happening and we're being sort of swept along on the tide of this larger group of people. It's bigger than we are. That conjures that magic that I think you need to have in this sequence to really buy that something magical happened that night to both of them. They were both there and it drew them together. That experience drew them together. And so that's why I love the karaoke room because you get the feeling that everybody in the karaoke room is having that same sort of feeling, right? It's a really great, fun night where it feels like these people they just met have they become close to and they've become close with each other and all of this stuff. I feel like that's so sharply observed. It happens in real life sometimes in this like little fleeting things when you're you're traveling or or you, you know, meet somebody and it does happen, but we don't see it in movies very often. Mm. Hats off to Sofia Coppola and to the actors. Like, I love everybody in that night out sequence. All their like <laughs> friends, like their buddy Charlie, and they're getting chased mm-hmm. down the street. Everything about it is is great. With the laser gun thing, whatever that is. Adoring, <laughs> yeah. Chased off with. <laughs> and the guy like throws a bottle at them and like yeah. it's funny, but it's not. It's, <laughs> right. it's so, there's real adventure happening. Yeah. 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 I think what's interesting about this movie is if we call this a romantic comedy, which it's you know, right. maybe maybe a borderline, to, yeah. Right. But like shares a sort of thematic core with maybe but those movies are usually about two characters who who the movie is about these characters connection with each other and what i think is interesting about lost in translation is the way i see it actually the movie is not about their connection with each other the movie is about their lack of connection with their partners and the fact that they have Mm. to confront that and their sort of dual character arc is confronting that by the end of the movie and realizing that the catalyst that makes them confront that is each other, obviously. And that's mm-hmm. why we don't need them. We don't need this 50 year old man and this 19 year old woman to like, you know, hook up or anything like that. We just need right. them to sort of heal from this thing that they have maybe not dealt with. Mm-hmm. So the first half of this movie is we see the faxes from Bob's wife and we see the like, so sort of brilliant, awkward interactions, incredible passive aggression. Right. <laughs> right. So, so good. Next level. Right. And and then we see the sort of awkward interactions between, you know, uh, Charlotte and, and her partner and then the Anna Ferris sort of like, <laughs> oh, there's this other thing. And maybe your partner is like more comfortable in this space than with this space. And then what happens through all of this is they meet each other. And, and of course, they realize it's like, oh, I can actually have a deeper connection with somebody that, you know, that mm. maybe I, I wasn't I had forgotten about. Maybe I haven't had in 10 years or, you know, whatever. So the midpoint, the night out scene is them actually being able to to dive into that. It's not just these like little one on one conversations now at the bar and stuff. Now it's like we get to actually go, you know, as you were saying, like put the relationship to the test almost. We get to go and spend time together. So it becomes a sort of celebration of togetherness and connection and a revelation about their own situations. And then sort of as any good midpoint should do, the rest of the movie is cascading off of that maybe that revelation that they sort of very quietly have in that karaoke scene. Mm. Well, and this movie is about travel. So I think that it's really critical the way that the movie dwells in, you know, this situation, again, this goes back to it being sharply observed. This situation doesn't arise when you're just in New York, right? Like there's something very specific that happens when you are taken out of your everyday life that gives you perspective on things that are happening in your everyday life. Those of us that have experienced that, it's a real thing. 
being in a city where you are forced to sort of look at yourself from a distance and your relationships from a literal and figurative distance, you see things that you don't see when you're up close and in them. And so there's that seed of truth that again makes this movie to me extra poignant. The Night Out also is the first time we really start to get into the streets of Tokyo and get Mm -hmm. out there and capturing that spirit of travel. Whereas I think we see like occasionally, you know, he's on the commercial set before that. She goes to the shrine before that. She's like wandering around in the subway, but it doesn't have that sort of Tokyo that night on that night out is filmed with this like glowy appeal that the city doesn't really have at other times in the movie. So there's a very conscious bringing in of the travel element during that sequence. Yeah, I hadn't considered that. But up until it's almost like the setting of the movie is sort of reflecting the characters' mindsets where it's like the first half of the movie, it is this sort of oppressive thing, this this foreign Mm. city, da, da, da. And then after that midpoint, you have like her, her little sightseeing journey where she's just sort of taking it all in and that kind of thing. I think it's sort of like once the two characters have have woken up at the midpoint, then now this city that they're in is not oppressive. It's beautiful and they can appreciate it and stuff because they are sort of like they're sort of coming awake in their own in their own minds. You know? And playful. They go out together more, right? They mm-hmm. go they go get sushi and then they like go to the hospital and <laughs> right. have an adventure in the hospital and whatever. So I agree with you, Brian. It's an interesting observation that there's kind of there's an impression in the first half, you know, where she's sitting at the window constantly, mm-hmm. this big city in front of her, and she mm-hmm. just feels very alone and isolated. And they're in it and having fun in the midpoint and going forward. Uh, but but as an observer, I also just really loved how the movie opened. I think there's a lot of just mood setting and yeah. slice of lifeness in the opening sequence. We get pretty quickly to that like lounge singer in this hotel, mm-hmm. yeah. and, and just you know the Japanese men sipping their beers in the hotel lounge. And I just I love that already, where it's like how interesting. Like we're in Tokyo, we've got this like American lounge singer, we've got the local crowd, we've got Bill Murray amidst it all. Like there is an amazing mood right from the start of that travel disorientation. Mm-hmm. curiosity like wow this is a different place and things are not what i expect and there's just a vibe i think that is what the movie does so well all the way through is yeah the vibes the energy <laughs> the, yeah. the feeling it is truly a movie operating on that level even if not every you know story beat hit for me 100 percent, it's undeniable that mm-hmm. it puts me in a mood and keeps me there yeah i also just love hotels like I, yeah. I think this is like the kind of like travel film evocative thing that like speaks to me where like the the most fun part for me when i go somewhere else is just watching the people and like watching how other people live their lives and so i think that's why like you're saying ox those those midnight 4 a.m hotel scenes when it's you know these people that are up all night and yeah the kind of entertainment just like that mood is it's like unlike anything else like people away from home but you're you're still in a safe space it's just i feel like hotels are kind of an an interesting locale psychologically and i feel like this Mm. film really does everything with that and and captures that kind of specific electricity like you're talking about i love a good movie that's sort of about like upper class upper class ennui where it's just like <laughs> languishing. Yeah, it's so much languishing. They have all the money. And I think that that's right. 
I think that that's part of the appeal of the hotel, right? Where it's like, you know, many of us that have traveled have like stayed in hostels and we're like, you know, staying in like crappy Airbnbs or whatever, you know, staying up all night in a bus station. Like I relate more to the before (laughs) trilogy where they're just wandering around because they can't afford a hotel, right? Right. But yeah, he's like a famous you know, movie star and people recognize him in the hotel and he's so, you know, put upon by the fact that there are fans at the hotel bar and, um, you know, her husband, Giovanni Ribisi, is a photographer of bands or, you know, whatever famous bands. And there's still a glamour to it that I think is appealing, at least to me, where it's like, they're so oppressed by this bar and I would die to be in like this bar. Looks, right. <laughs> that pool looks amazing. There's in this pool at night with this incredible view over Tokyo and it looks awesome. Is there anything more like sexy and appealing than Scarlett Johansson sort of smoking out of the corner of her mouth, like on the other side of the, <laughs> right. the hotel bar restaurant? Yeah, I don't know. It, it does. It's also just pretty. Like this movie is pretty at every step. And mm-hmm. uh, so, you know, don't underestimate the power of just making a a beautiful movie to look at also yeah right yeah this was the era of the sort of music video movie with like Mm -hmm. punch drunk love eternal sunshine lost in translation garden state even as we talked about minority report and catch me if you can like even movies like that were sort of like but what if it like felt a certain way what if it was like really movie (laughs) and i'm a sucker for that like i love movies where i'm just like i just want to sit here and sort of i could i could turn the dialogue off and still just like Mm -hmm. really enjoy what i'm watching you know definitely I do feel like that was something that for me was a little bit of a barrier in that first half hour where you are getting to know them, that it was a little bit like these people are like kind of insufferable, like (laughs) your lives are so hard that you're traveling in Tokyo and your famous husband is photographing famous bands and it's like you're a hipster and your life is super hard and you used to be a famous star. But for some reason, this movie, as it progresses, it it makes it okay. Like I'm able to connect with them in a way that sometimes I'm, I'm not like uh, considering other movies from this era or that are kind of trading in this kind of like, yes, the languishing of (laughs) kind of privileged white people uh, (laughs) as they do their thing. Suffering is suffering. Like I think, you know, one of our favorite authors, Michael, you've all know Harari. He, he points out like just physiologically in the brain, there's no, chemical difference between being depressed about you know upper class white person things and (laughs) and other things you know like like if you're depressed about your life it feels the same internally even if you are extremely privileged it's easy to roll your eyes at but it's like you know you can suffer at every income level as we well know in our society and uh this is a story about people who are very lucky who are suffering (laughs) this reminds me of something i've said before on I think I've said before on this podcast, which is one of my screenwriting props in college always said that characters should be better than real. And that just means with the volume turned up more extreme or whatever. Mm -hmm. So the vast majority of people who are languishing are incredibly middle class staying in very boring, like sort of chain hotels. Right. And they have a little (laughs) bit of money and not a lot of money. And they're they're also not, you know, the motorcycle diaries across anywhere or something like that. The middle ground is the most boring ground and not really fertile for narrative drama. So in this case, Sofia Coppola is clearly writing about a lifestyle she knows something about, Mm -hmm. which we can get to like her real life influences if we want to. But also picking something that is a little bit more extreme. He is 
famous, right? She's a Yale graduate and she doesn't need to work. So it is a real like, <laughs> right. It's so a problem. Bored. I yeah. know what a problem, <laughs> but, but it is right in the lives yeah. of these characters. It actually is. And so it does create that you've pushed a situation further in order to create more drama. And I think that that's just good screenwriting. Better than real just means slightly more extreme than what most of us have really experienced. More Better than average. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Also, the other thing it does, I feel like it's maybe reductive to leave it at suffering is suffering and everybody's suffering is equal. But I, well, think I, I, I didn't mean that everybody's suffering is equal. <laughs> no, yeah. I want people to misread it. That yeah, way. I, I think I think anybody can be depressed no matter who you of are. Of course you they know? can, like, yes. Yes, yes. And then you can make a movie about different types of people being depressed and it's mm -hmm. still depression or whatever. Yes. Yeah. I think what ultimately works for me in this movie, the more I'm thinking about it, is that it's it's about these people, but it also feels like it's about our culture and, and, and like capitalism. Like it feels like it's not just about these people being depressed. I feel like it's about them, yeah, living in a society that creates these situations where you can feel so isolated and so alone. Mm. And that that is a universal thing because we all all are part of the same society and, you know, the people that they're married to, I guess more her with the Giovanni Ribisi character, but he's he's also manufacturing this right. culture, right? Mm -hmm, like he's mm -hmm. photographing the bands and he's friends with the movie star Anna, Anna Ferris and all that. I think there's also an indictment of the culture at large and how it affects all of us in a way that ultimately makes it about more than just these people. Mm -hmm. well, and like even Bill Murray's wife, she is really taken by this consumer culture of mm -hmm. remodeling and yeah. which model do you want? Like it's, <laughs> The burgundy. <laughs> that's like her main activity <laughs> is, is like deciding yeah. what products to buy. Spending you know? money, essentially. Yeah. Yeah. Mm -hmm. yeah. And I'll just add to this, like, the reason I never sort of get what you're talking about, Michael, is because I, I think it's, you know, if a movie is about pursuit of happiness or something like Will Smith is trying to get a job so he can like feed his child. Right. So you're like, OK, getting this job is like super important because this is your livelihood. This is, you know, this is primal. But we don't want to see a movie about a CEO who's like really working hard to get that bonus. Right. Because you're like, wait, well, <laughs> right. hold on. You already make. What are the stakes? Yeah. Right. Yeah. Like, like, what are the stakes? We don't care. You already have plenty. Why is this a problem? You know, why is it a problem if you can't buy, you know, remodel your kitchen or something like that? But Lost in Translation is not a movie about that. It's, it doesn't matter right. what the characters, you know, like social, like race or, or um, income level is or anything like that. It's a movie about characters who are feel disconnected in their relationships and are having maybe trouble being honest with themselves about that or honest with their partners about that. And they need to come to terms with that. So, like, I just think it's weird to be like, oh, because these characters have money, they shouldn't be upset about the relationship. You know, that's sort of where right. I bump on that. And just like, what, what does that have to do? What does one have to do with the other? I completely agree. And that's what I was about to say is that I think that the status of these characters makes this movie a pretty to look at <laughs> and sort of glamorous, right? To envision where, who we might be in this movie or, or under the same circumstances, right? It is exactly what you're talking about, Michael, which is that what ails them is a universal sickness. It is a problem with their ability to be present with their partners. It is there to know themselves, to be happy with themselves, to be excited about life, all of these things that they're really struggling with. And so that's kind of why, even though 
we might roll our eyes at the CEO who wants to get a bonus because there are no stakes. There are stakes here. Yeah. You know, their marriages are falling apart around them. And we can see that that's happening. And so, you know, she's 20 years old and, you know, he's so much older. He's, you know, got 25 years of marriage under his belt. And at the same time, he can't figure it out or make it work. You know, stakes are important to a screenwriter and they're important to think about. And this movie consistently is able to center their marriages as the like sort of the stakes of if they don't solve this or if they don't come to terms with this, as you're saying, Brian, then they really will not be able to salvage their marriages. And that will be a problem. So, you know, I was reading the screenplay for this this morning, which I really recommend. Mm -hmm. You can find this screenplay online. Did you guys read it? I looked through it very briefly, but that was it. I looked at the ending because I was curious if there Mm -hmm. was a written ending and there is. Right. And it's not as good as... Not as good as this. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. (laughs) The screenplay is really interesting. If you haven't read it, uh, I strongly recommend you look it up. But Sofia Coppola clearly was relying on the actors to bring a lot to these parts. And so a bunch of the scenes are... Bob is greeted by the, um, you know, commercial people. And they ask him how his flight was. And he says, you know, he's very tired. But it's not written as dialogue. Right. It's written as he says he's very tired or, you know, and things like he wishes he could go to bed instead of a line of dialogue. So she's clearly relying on the actors to bring a lot to that. I mean, she said if Bill Murray wouldn't have played the part, she wouldn't have even done the movie. So it's like she's just like Bill Murray does Bill Murray things (laughs) like action line. (laughs) Yeah, pretty much, which is kind of hard to get away with. It's it's interesting because beyond even Bill Murray, like I remember watching it again this time. All the Scarlett Johansson scenes early on feel very improvisational. Like it, it mm-hmm. doesn't feel like written dialogue. You, you have this sense that you get from improvisational movies where the dialogue is kind of messy or the timing is kind of off in that real life kind of way. So I, I was wondering the whole time, like, was this even scripted? Or mm. as it sounds like a lot of it wasn't. It was just they do this in this scene. Let's see what happens. Is that the whole movie, Trisha, or is that just like certain key moments? It's pretty much the whole movie. And anytime there is scripted dialogue or or most of the time there's scripted dialogue, it's kind of about their marriages and their relationships mm-hmm. and their search for who they are, right? Why they're unhappy and what it is that's going on that's blocking them from really connecting with their partners and connecting from other people in their lives, right? So there's that scene where near the beginning where... Charlotte is talking on the phone to somebody, you know, back home. She's like, I went to the shrine and I didn't feel anything today. And then, you know, and John is using these hair products that I don't know who I married. (laughs) That is scripted. And there's a lot of other stuff around it that isn't. But clearly there's a backbone here. There's a narrative backbone here that is about very clearly on the page about relationships. And actually there's more scripted that's even more on the nose. And a lot of that was cut out for some of these more atmospheric things or these mumbled mm. lines that Bill Murray just kind of said. So, you know, Sophia Coppola was making a movie very deliberately about something. And that movie was scripted. Now, it's not exactly the movie that it ended up being. Mm-hmm. Um, but I'm just saying there's a, a real narrative here with maybe not a concrete goal, but definitely a story, right? A progression towards something. Yeah. The thing that I'm reacting to when I'm, talking about these kinds of movies and these kinds of stories. It's more of a meta thing also, right? Mm. Like, who got to make movies about what problems at what time? Mm. That's a fair question. Sure, right. And I think this was the era where 
white people like American Beauty, right? Where it's like, I have a wife and a kid and I'm financially secure and I'm so unhappy. Like, (laughs) I love that movie. And I think there is like universal human experiences that do exist within that. And so I think as long as you're going after that, that's great. And that's what all stories should be is like use a specific to get at a universal. And so it's more the sometimes they don't always achieve that. And then also just there was a long time where only certain kinds of stories could be told to get at those universal things. And so right. Mm-hmm. That's more my the, the initial thought. And American Beauty is a good example of a movie where it's like, well, what if this character is living this quote unquote, perfect life? You know, is that are they happy? Well, no, they're not. Because all that stuff doesn't matter what matters is x y and z you know that kind of thing where it's it's using that setting as part of the the theme and the the sort of statement about the movie. it's about the american dream right potentially the hollowness at the center of achieving all these ostensible successful things and just to say something that should be super obvious i'm obviously responding to this movie differently as a woman and getting to see Sofia Coppola get nominated for Best Director and mm. win a Best Screenplay Oscar for this movie as a woman was meaningful to me at the yeah. time. It was a big deal. Right. It yeah. was a really big deal. And you're bringing up an excellent point, Michael, which is who gets to make movies and what do they get to make movies about? Whereas now we look at this movie and we're like, oh, look at these people with their ennui. <laughs> yes. And <laughs> this movie with its very distinctive POV and the way that um, Charlotte's character is written was not something that we had a lot of back then. Yeah. You know, where you get to have a a female lead, essentially. I would say this is a two-hander. They're both sort of equally leads. Mm -hmm. They're going through some things, you know, together. And there's a little bit of a confounding of the expectations of romance. There's a confounding of the expectations of this younger woman with an older man and like a male gaze that doesn't exist in this movie because she's just allowed to be who she is. And, Mm -hmm. you know, we could bring up and talk about the opening shot of this movie if we Mm -hmm. wanted to, (laughs) which I think is doing something very deliberate, right? It's in the script. Yeah, it's very clearly deliberate. Yeah. Yeah. What are your thoughts in the opening shot? Because I I mean, I love it. I'm always struck by it, but what's what's the interpretation what's the what is it doing well it's doing a variety of things it's a couple different it's homages it's like homages mm-hmm. to two different things the painter yeah yeah the painter whose name has flown exactly out of my head right at the moment that i need <laughs> john it. and it starts with a k john Cassere. <laughs> thank you thank you yeah and then um yeah it's also an homage to what's her name's character bridget bardot thank you bridget bardot There's filmic and artistic homages going into the opening shot. But there's also, to me, speaks to the lack of intimacy in Scarlett Johansson's, in Charlotte's relationship with her husband, Mm. where we later on see that she's, you know, very deliberately sort of hanging around in her underwear and trying to be close to him and trying to get him interested in their love life. And he very much is not interested in their love life. Mm. It is like, an erotic image, but it's kind of being isolated away from the person that she's trying to entice with it. It's sort of like, yeah, a waste of cute underwear, if I can put it that way. <laughs> yeah, right, right. <laughs> right, which is which is actually, there's even more of that written into the script. There's a, a part where she goes and buys cute pink underwear and then is wearing it like in the room around him and trying to be like, do you really have to go? Can't you stay with me? And he's like, yeah, I'm definitely leaving. 
And she's like, well, what do you think of my scarf? And she's just wearing her underwear and the scarf, right? <laughs> she's trying to entice him and, and yeah. reaching out for connection. And so I think that the dwelling of that image in the, in the first frame is making us think about, okay, what does this mean in terms of like sexual love, romantic love, intimacy, you know, inviting us sort of into that part of the conversation. Right. And meanwhile, when she is on her own, she's wearing flats and pants and sort of a vest, you know, it's button downs. Right. Exactly. (laughs) Yeah. Don't look good on anybody. (laughs) In a brief bit of like researching that I I did about it, there was an interpretation of that opening shot from a feminist whose name I didn't write down. Uh, But it was also saying just the simple fact that it's on screen for so long Mm-hmm. It's a image that through a male gaze would be sexualized, but it's there for so long that it becomes awkward and then it's kind of forcing us to confront how we're like reacting to it. Sure. Simply by being there for so long and being so up in your face, it's making you have to reflect about your feelings about that image. And mm-hmm. that's also a just a great strong way to start a movie is like shake people a little bit mm-hmm. before they enter your world. Well, and it's, of course, it's a still frame, too. So that's what you're talking about, Michael, where nothing is moving. And the way that you right. experience, like, art on a gallery wall, where you sit mm-hmm. you sit and you look at it and you look at it and you look at it and you start to notice different things and notice different things in yourself. Mm-hmm. It's not doing what cinema does, which is move things around and connect images. It's just letting you sit in an image to sort of frame and prepare you for the experience of watching this movie, which I think is, yeah, cool and Again, lots of very deliberate direction going on here and lots of rich thematic building, you know, lots of symbols and things are being built in thematically. All of which, uh, you know, we can cap with Sofia Coppola's quote about that shot, which is, I don't have a really good reason for it. (laughs) (laughs) It's just how I wanted to start the movie. That's always the best after all the interpretation. (laughs) Right. Yeah, exactly. I just like the shot. I feel like at some points, directors are just trolling people. They're trolling us. Well, it's that also just like a creative person can have an intuition of like an instinct that this is the right thing to do that's Mm -hmm. been filtered through their entire life experience and processed through their brain. And so they just know that's the right thing. They don't have to explain it to anyone when they're making it right. They just know that it's right. Often the most impactful striking images or moments in cinema, Mm -hmm. like they're not coming from a logic, you know, like this means this plus this plus this. So like, this is the image that will add up to that. It's like, maybe that is happening on an extremely complex level in the back of their unconscious. But it is coming from that feeling place that I have an intuition that this image works as the kind of opening statement for my film. I don't know why here it is. And then it works and we can interpret it however we want. But we're going to hopefully talk about this movie soon but i watched portrait of a lady on fire last night Mm -hmm. and that movie was just so full of images and moments that just felt they were coming from this like deeply intuitive amazing place Mm -hmm. and yeah it's like i i don't like i don't know how to make that movie intentionally like there's a lot of intention and a lot of technical mastery and all these things happening but also just like a magic happening too and like when movies have that magic, I, I like I don't know how to intentionally do that besides through intuition and feeling. Well, and we talked about improvisation on this movie. There was some of that in the filmmaking as well, where, mm. you know, they were shooting with a very small crew. They had a very limited budget. So they were kind of just running around and trying to get things as quickly as they could. And there were definitely sequences and scenes where 
Sofia Coppola was just like, that thing is right and seems to suit what's going on. Film that instead of what's like in the script. That kind of thing, I'm not saying it can't be taught because we've talked before about training your intuition, mm-hmm. right? Like feeding your intuition with study so that your yeah. intuition can respond in the moment. But I think that this movie really benefits from that and from Bill Murray's intuition and from Scarlett Johansson's intuition, which maybe leads us to the ending, which is not what is in the script Mm -hmm. and was intuited by the people (laughs) that were there. So because in the script, they have written lines and it's basically Bob says, why are you crying? Charlotte says, I'll miss you. And Bob says, I know I'm going to miss you, too. And they hug and kiss and walk away from each other. And I think it's so interesting how the movie the choice to not let us hear anything that's exchanged between them in that final moment is so much more powerful and leaves you with so much more to think about and kind of sit with than a moment like as written in the script, which is just so kind of simple and to the point in a way that isn't really satisfying. Well, and that it, you know, it comes at the end of a movie that is all about, like we've talked about inferring what's being signaled in between the lines Mm -hmm. or the Mm -hmm. actions that, might seem like the normal thing to do and they do the opposite one what does that mean so it's all about kind of inferring the relationship and so i think it's a stroke of brilliance to end the movie with this ultimate inference of the relationship and what that means to the viewer the framing of that entire like last couple of scenes where they're saying goodbye to each other is really brilliant also where they actually do kiss each other it's framed so differently than like a big, dramatic, romantic kiss that you would expect at the end of the movie. Right. Mm -hmm. The fact that we can't see his mouth when he's whispering in her ear, that's purposefully obscuring what it is that he's saying even more. You feel like you could almost hear it every time. It's it's like it it teases you so much because it's like, if only I could like decode this audio and people have tried. I I saw a YouTube video, (laughs) but like you really can't, you really can't make that what he's saying. And she says something back like, okay, or I know, or she says, okay. Okay. Ah, (laughs) what are you responding to? It's so frustrating, but also so perfect. And I wouldn't Mm. want it any other way. Yeah, it's really great. Yeah. Okay, well, why don't we go around and say what lessons we're going to take away from Lost in Translation. Before we do, want to quickly mention the Patreon for Beyond the Screenplay. Just a reminder that it exists. If you're enjoying the show and you want to support us, the link to our Patreon is in the description below. We have several rewards for different tiers. You get tons of bonus episodes at this point. We should count Mm -hmm. how many there are, but there's a bunch of patron-exclusive episodes. $5 patrons and above get the video versions of the podcast, which I mentioned at the beginning. And then at the $10 tier, we have a monthly film club hangout where we all get on a Zoom call with the patrons and we get to hear from you guys. We talked about recently Knives Out, which was a lot of fun hearing all the different people's reactions to the genre switching, all the stuff that we talked about in our podcast episode, we get to hear your guys' feedback on. So the Patreon is great. There's also a Discord where you can go on and we're constantly chatting about movies we're watching. There was a live chat happening during the Oscars, which was fun to just like everybody watching it together. So if you're enjoying the show, support us on Patreon. And now let's dive into lessons. Alex, what's your lesson for Lost in Translation? My lesson is that there's nothing like an awareness of time to bring poignancy to a film like this. And mm-hmm. you know, so many movies like this rely on a ticking clock. You know, you got Before Sunrise is a classic example of there's this one night we're together. We're about to go off to very different places after this. We have our own lives that we have to get back to. So this night is very precious. And there's 
like an automatic sadness already from the beginning because you're aware of an endpoint. And and I just think any movie can benefit from a ticking time bomb or ticking clock, but especially films about the kind of poignancy of two people coming together. It really helps to have that always in the back of the viewer's mind that this is going to end and is coming up soon. And every moment that passes where they maybe waste time, you know, where they, mm-hmm. they they get upset with each other and they waste a whole day where they're not, you know, experiencing the time they could have together. They're apart. That is like a tragedy almost because there, you know, there's only one more day left. Oh, my God. Anytime you're working on a screenplay that doesn't have a ticking clock of some sort, take a step back and ask, like, could there be like, could there be mm-hmm. something going on? That's going to have an endpoint that our fighters, that our characters are fighting against. Mm-hmm. And especially in a relationship drama like this, I think it's really important. Mm-hmm. That's a good word. Yeah, the, the like the doomed relationship kind of framing makes you just like lean in a little bit more and, and totally adds that pressure. And it just it makes it makes the slice of life moments more meaningful because they're not going to last forever. And you can't ever do this again. Like this is the one time this will happen with these people in this place, it can never happen again. So this very ordinary moment suddenly takes on a poignancy it wouldn't have otherwise. Yeah. Mm -hmm. Yeah, absolutely. Trisha, what about you? One of the things that I love most about this movie, as I mentioned, is how well observed everything is. And especially what I love about that is the restraint that is shown by the characters. And that's very realistic. It feels like the way that people act and speak where they're, sort of bringing themselves in and not saying what they mean. And, you know, it's just classic sort of like subtext stuff. There's so much silence in the way that Charlotte and Bob communicate with each other that feels realistic, where they feel like they're searching for what to say or they're testing each other by not saying what they mean and the lovely goofiness where he'll crack a joke instead of saying something or even crack a joke about something very sad, right? Where she's like, what are you doing? And he's like, well, I'm forgetting my kids' birthdays and I'm making $2 million on a commercial when I could be doing a play somewhere. Mm. It's funny. It feels like that self-deprecating sort of, this is how people talk. And one of the best observed moments in it to me is the moment where they're like lying on the bed at the end where they've, um, they're sort of talking through the night. Right. And he reaches down and touches her foot. Mm-hmm. It's so beautiful. Uh, but that goes back to the restraint, right? Where they're not saying what they mean. And that's how people are. They kind of can reach only a little bit. They can only reach a couple. In- we only can reach a couple inches toward each other mm-hmm. so often. I love that this movie captures that experience really well of you're so desperate. You're so drowning for connection. And you can only reach out and touch someone's foot. That's sort of the best that you can do. (laughs) Mm -hmm. It's so beautiful. We kind of say, write what you know all the time. But I feel like clearly Sofia Coppola was tapping into real life experiences when she was writing this and making no effort to conceal that fact. (laughs) Right. But it works. There's that truth in there because, again, this is very well observed. Whether or not these things exactly happened. This is kind of how people are. These are our foibles. These are our blocks that we can't get over. Right. Yeah, I, that's almost like kind of exactly what I was I was going to say that. And I think you said it better. So I'm just kind of <laughs> what Trisha said is my lesson. But but there is that there's this it's smart and the restraint, like you're saying, and it's I, I get the sense that the movie 
is, uh, yeah, knows that I am an intelligent person that can infer. And I feel like that's the same thing that's happening with them, with their relationship, like you're talking about. Like, he can make a joke because he knows that she's going to take the correct meaning from it. Right. They both kind of know what each other is thinking and it's in that kind of in-between space that all of this is is happening. Is that mm-hmm. they're saying enough around it that everyone knows what's in what between. it means. Yes. Yeah. And I think that's yeah. That I personally find that so powerful. And like you say, I feel like that reflects reality to me and, and a lot more. And I think it's rare for a movie to capture that and convey it in a filmic way. Like not as we've said multiple times, you don't want to just transcribe an actual conversation someone has and put that in your movie that's awful yeah but to create a film and use filmmaking to evoke that feeling is impressive and the thing that i have realized i love still about lost in translation and i love it when they're looking at each other when something else is happening Mm -hmm. there's something crazy happening over there and they're just exchanging glances about like what is this nonsense happening over here right and that's to me very similar to life too where it's like when someone feels the same way about the nonsense you know you have that friend at work that like in the work meeting you look at because you're like yeah. this is mm. dumb <laughs> whatever's happening in this work meeting and you look at your buddy from work and you're like this guy knows how dumb this is so do i this is my soulmate <laughs> in this moment yeah. right it's exactly that again i think that's what's special about that night out sequence exactly. and why it's cool that instead of having them be together the whole time they can be on opposite sides of the room but they're the person that they want to check in with when uh-huh. that thing happens. And I think that speaks volumes. Exactly. Brian, what's your lesson? Yeah, uh, definitely piggybacking off of both of those. Um, it, it is just sort of a masterclass in how to say things without saying them. You know, we, we, yep. we use the word subtext often to refer to dialogue specifically. But this movie is an example of like how every facet of the movie is is doing that sort of we know you're going to infer this so we don't need to say more it's funny trisha that you say uh so much of the dialogue is about the relationships because that feels like the stuff that was actually taken out of the the final movie is most of the characters like these two characters very rarely even mention their partners to each other right explicitly explicitly (laughs) right and they um they never even introduce themselves to each other and they never mention their own relationship to each other like not never never but basically never but so much of it is communicated through our viewing of watching this conversation between you know charlotte and her partner or watching a conversation between charlotte and bob and what we get out of it the moment that really sticks out to me is when he puts her to bed after their night out and it's Mm -hmm. like there are these micro micro beats that happen Mm -hmm. right where it's like he puts her to bed he tucks her in in this sort of very protective fatherly way Mm -hmm. and then she smiles like i'm going to sleep now and he gives a look that's like maybe disappointment and then He turns off the light, you know, making sure that she's good and she's tucked in, da-da-da, protective. Then he touches her shoulder, which is maybe a little affectionate, you know, and then he leaves and he checks the lock, you know? So it's sort of like this Mm -hmm. back and forth between like, am I this character's father or something else? The script says she opens her eyes to smile at him. He wants to kiss her, but he leaves. And then interior hotel hall night, he walks down the empty hall, not wanting to leave her like those. So the script is like saying things that aren't filmable in the sense of like, it's, you know, that sort of. We need to give the impression of this idea somehow when we actually on the day when we shoot this, we need to give that impression. But then the other thing I was thinking is this idea of keeping a secret from the audience, like the whispering at the end. And it's fascinating whether it's 
Pulp Fiction, The Briefcase, or a heavy movie like Doubt, or The Spinning Top and Inception. It's these things that sort of like for years, people are going like, but what do you think? What was in that briefcase? Like, what was, what did he whisper to her? You know, like all that kind of stuff. It's fun because it sort of becomes this cultural conversation. It sucks when you're refusing to answer a question that should be answered. And like, to me, Inception, you know, I always use this as my example of a movie where it's like <laughs> the movie is saying two very different Still things. talking about this, Brian. Yeah. <laughs> I'm with you, Brian. I really hate it. <laughs> yeah. I mean, we could talk about doubt, but that's a whole other thing. Yeah, yeah. But basically movies where the movie is saying two very different things, depending on what the actual, you know, which way the top, you know, falls. But Lost in Translation, I think it works because it doesn't matter, because of everything we just talked about. Sort of, we are inferring so much from what is not being said. And what is the sort of pivotal moment of this movie is we don't know what's being something is being said. We don't know what it is, but it doesn't matter because that's because we have sort of these characters have finished their journey. Mm -hmm. They have found each other. They've changed each other. Presumably their lives are going to be different from this point on. We don't need to know what is actually being said in that moment, because regardless, unless he's like, I poisoned your coffee, um, like <laughs> regardless of what is being said in that moment we understand what has happened in this movie, you know? And I think, again, that's all, that's all because of how much, how beautifully this movie says so much without saying it. I'm sorry. I just, and now I'm picturing the context of that scene where she says like, okay, tearfully, and then walks yeah. away. <laughs> like, I, I understand. She now knows she's going to die. Right? <laughs> Is the actual ending of this movie. Oh, boy. I love it. Yeah. <laughs> Super dark. Ending. Yeah. Seriously. <laughs> Why don't we go around and say what we've been watching recently? Trisha, what have you been watching recently? So for no particular reason, I decided to embark upon like a Harrison Fordathon and I started watching a ton of Harrison Ford movies, some of which I had seen before, like all of the Jack Ryans, which he actually only made two of those Jack Ryans. Mm -hmm. There are other Jack Ryan movies that he did not make. I think the Harrison Ford ones are the best. That's just me. Anyway, they're both very good. Hold on, hold on, Trisha. The other one has a submarine in it. Well, obviously, Hunt for Red October is really, really good. Yeah. That's not a Harrison Ford, Jack Ryan movie is what I'm trying to say. <laughs> but I had seen those before. It was great to rewatch them. And then I've also watched a couple that I had never seen before, like Regarding Henry, which is wild <laughs> and not what I expected it to be. It was written by J.J. Abrams. What? And I don't mm -hmm. have time to talk about how insane regarding Henry is yeah. or the movie Hanover Street, which is a really bad, one of the worst Harrison Ford movies ever. With Harrison Ford and Christopher Plummer in World War II. Very awful. Um, anyway, but the one that I do want to discuss is Air Force One. Yeah. And Air Force One <laughs> is a really good movie. It is probably the best of the diehard knockoffs. And <laughs> it is so engaging and like, Man, when they used to make action movies, you guys, they used <laughs> mm -hmm. to make just really good contained action movies that were just like a one off original idea. Mm -hmm. And somebody walked into a room and said, like, it's Die Hard on a plane and it's the president of the United States and it's Harrison Ford. And somebody gave them millions of dollars. <laughs> and then we got to enjoy Air Force One. And damn, it is just a fun ride. So if you haven't watched Air Force One lately, I strongly recommend. I mean, just just check in on some Harrison Ford movies you might have missed. What Lies Beneath, even. You could right. watch. You know what? I still haven't gotten to What Lies Beneath. I'm, <gasps> what? I'm working my Jack way through. <laughs> we'll get there. We'll Michelle get there. Pfeiffer. But in the meantime, you can enjoy Air Force One. Really, really great. Also, Trisha, have you seen The Frisco Kid? 
Of course I have. Okay. Frisco Good. Kid I did see. Yeah, which is has not aged well. No, <laughs> I'm, yeah, here, I'm here to report. Not surprised. <laughs> Movies that have aged very spectacularly. <laughs> Air Force One is is up there. Amazing. Brian, what have you been watching? Uh, well, I'm going to cheat a bit because I know we usually don't talk about things that we have already podcasted about. But after rewatching the pilot of Breaking Bad, I then proceeded to watch all of Breaking Bad. Wow. Yeah. My girlfriend had never seen it and she got hooked right away. We watched the whole thing in a month and it was just like, you know, it's like, what do you want to do tonight? Do you want to do Breaking Bad? Uh, okay. Okay. <laughs> we, can, we can do that. And, uh, and, uh, yeah, I am, I just really love it. Like, it's, um, I haven't seen any since the finale. So just, like having that separation just made me really enjoy getting back into it. And I just sort of my love of it lasted throughout the entire like all the way to the end. It was cool to watch with somebody who hadn't seen it before. She's really good at like picking up on things and calling things. So it was cool to see what things she would call a season ahead of time uh-huh. and what things she had no idea were coming and just sort of and I didn't always remember what like what episode a certain thing happened in. So I was like on the edge of my seat going, is this the episode where this crazy thing happens or not? I don't know. Michael, I kept an eye out for the GoPro shots. And it is like right around the third season, maybe early fourth season where they get more and more aggressive. But I do maintain that they are universally used during like incidental things and montages and stuff like that. So thankfully not during dialogue, like pivotal scenes, that kind of thing. So I'm not defending them as much as I'm saying it would be awful if they were used like during scenes that mattered, basically. Mm-hmm. Is there, there's one on a broom. There's one on a broom. There's one on a broom. <laughs> there's one that drove me crazy. I don't mind almost any of them, but there's one where it's a guy opening up a bunch of security boxes and it's like on the key. So you're seeing his hand like turn and open the thing. But interestingly, <laughs> then we watched El Camino, the, the Breaking uh-huh. Bad movie, which only came out in, in 2019, which I just find really interesting. You know, the criticism which, when it came out was that it was just like a long episode of Breaking Bad. And my counter argument to that was it's like a long episode of Breaking Bad. Right, right. <laughs> and so I loved it so much when it came out because again i hadn't seen an episode in years so it was just like oh my gosh these characters are back and i think watching it right after the finale is great because you do get closure for this character who doesn't get closure in in the actual series or or doesn't get much closure in the actual series but it just raises this really fascinating question which we brought up a few times in the podcast which is what is a movie what do we expect from from the word Mm. once the word movie is applied to the thing that you've made what does that mean you know we have this whole different expectation for a two-hour movie than even for a two-hour television special, you know? Right. And if they had said like, oh, this is El Camino, the Breaking Bad special episode or the bonus episode or the special, we'd be like, oh, it's a two-hour episode of Breaking Bad. But no, it's the Breaking Bad movie and it's shot in 235. So now it's a movie. And now we have this whole different set of expectations. And like, I don't know why, like we're just strange people, you know? <laughs> like <laughs> we, we, We've been trained. We've been trained yeah. unconsciously to expect different things from different Words formats. Words mean things, Brian. Yeah. Like that's normal. For right. us. Is it a film or a movie? Yeah. Right. But yeah, I just think it's fascinating how we process that kind of stuff. So mm-hmm. is it a great movie? I don't know. Is it a great two-hour extra-ness of Breaking Bad? I think so. I'm glad it exists. The end. <laughs> nice. Alex, what about you? Well, on the subject of Lost in Translation's meanderingness, I saw the most meandering thing you could possibly see, which is a pure observational documentary about farm animals called wow. Gunda. Mm, oh, yeah. <laughs> beautifully shot in black and white uh with like a dolby atmos sound mix it's incredibly like immersive sound mix i was gonna say where Uh, did you see it 
I saw it at the Lemley Theaters in Pasadena. Hey, theater, nice. theater. <laughs> the main reason I saw it was because it was a, in a theater and I wanted to see a like a theater experience movie. And I read about this and it sounded like a, the, the kind of thing I would only watch in a theater, probably. Uh, and, you know, it's the kind of movie that probably could have been half as long, but it has to be 90 minutes to be in a theater, mm. unfortunately. But I would say, you know, if you crunch it down to half its length, it is a really interesting experiment of just being with animals long enough to just start. They're not anthropomorphized. There's no narration. There's no anything except for just like, this is like a pig and her piglets, like living on a farm and like, just what, what are animals? What are they thinking? What are they doing? <laughs> like, like and it, it's really beautifully shot. I don't know how they shot it, but it's like, you're really up there with the animals. I almost feels like they're using drones or something to do these really smooth, amazing tracking shots right up there with these creatures and it's also disturbing because they're not human they're not anthropomorphized in a cute disney way they do things that are inexplicable and kind of wrong and you're like that's it's not a human it's an animal yeah anyway it's a very interesting experience (laughs) has it has an ending that is very well done uh because this is a farm and the piglets you know are not going to stay with the mother forever (laughs) yeah and they let things play out in really long shots where you get to, you you almost get to see an animal go through a thought process and come to a conclusion and it's just i haven't seen anything like it where you're with an animal long enough to just let it be an animal and try to s- interpret what it all means as opposed to the bbc documentary kind of approach which is like a disney approach of right. you know we're going to narrate and almost put a human right. perspective onto this animal experience this is just the raw animal experience and some of it is inexplicable. Some of it's very beautiful and cute and it's a weird mix of emotions. Have we ever been more us in our, one of my literally what I've been thinking this whole time. Have we become caricatures of ourselves? If, if we had the auto generator, you know, that Brian was making right. for what are we watching? Yeah. But like to an extreme degree. Uh, yeah. Right. It's this Harrison Ford marathon. Yeah. Experience, experiential documentary. All we need is Michael to round it out. All right, Michael. You got to live up to your stereotype. <laughs> I feel like there's pressure now. Yeah. Uh, what is my stereotype? Let's see. <clears throat> so I've been watching not a movie. I've been watching. Yeah. Yeah. You said not a movie. Yep. yep. Here we are. Boom. Four for four. The HBO limited series that's happening right now, Mayor of Easttown, mm. which okay. is a crime mystery thriller. So I feel like this is pretty on brand. Right. I think yeah. We've done it. So there are at the time of this recording three episodes out. It stars Kate Winslet, which is the reason I wanted to watch it. It's a great reason. Yeah. And she is great. I won't give anything away because it's, you know, it's if you're a crime fiction, you want to know the mystery, you want to get lost in the Gone Girl-esque detective, like, what happened to the person? Who did the what? And it's a small town and everyone knows each other and everyone has a reason and there's going to be red herrings here and there. Uh, it does all of that as much as you want it to. I think it took a little bit to get me into it. The first episode almost lost me, but the subsequent episodes have definitely hooked me. It's super fun to watch Kate Winslet be a detective in a small town. She's, yeah, amazing. And I'm I'm pretty hooked. So I can nice. definitely recommend Mayor of Easttown. It's a weird name. It's Mayor, M-A-R-E, because her last name is Mayor, mm. like the horse. 
but it kind of sounds like mayor when they're it saying it. It sounds exactly like right. mayor. But she's not the mayor, but maybe <laughs> there's some meaning happening oh, there. Like okay. she's responsible. I don't know. It's complicated. Like a pun. Like a pun. Right. Deep meaning. A mystery pun. <laughs> it's a weird title, but yeah, it's like crime mystery, character drama, all the things that are, are fun to get. Kate Winslet. In. And Kate mm-hmm. Winslet. All you need, really. Yep. Awesome. Well, this has been our conversation about Lost in Translation. We want to say a big thank you, as always, to the patrons that make this show possible. Thank you to our producer, Vince Major. Thank you to our editor, Eric Schneider. I'm Michael Tucker. I've been joined today by Trisha Rand, Brian Pittner, and Alex Cayeros. As always, our Twitter handles are in the show notes. Send us a tweet and say hi, and we will see you in the next episode. Bye, everybody. Bye-bye. Bye. Bye.